Welcome to In Conversation. I'm Max Molnado. In Conversation features Dean Michael Horswell and faculty from Florida Atlantic University's Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters, talking about research and creative activities that span the arts, humanities, and social sciences. Consciousness is a concept that seems to be exclusively linked to organic beings. It is a topic discussed by philosophers since the question was raised of what makes us, us. Today, that idea is being challenged, as technology continues to be improved and artificial intelligence is becoming more intuitive. For some, AI is simply the nosy neighbor, tracking your buying habits or the posts you read on social media, while others see it as the future to a new technological age. But are we ready for that jump? For Dr. Susan Schneider, humanity needs to first realize the power that AI possesses and its implications for the future. One of the things I do is I work with Congress on all these issues involving threats as well as the promises of artificial intelligence. AI threatens to create biased algorithms. So right now we're seeing biased decision procedures when it comes to selecting who gets mortgages, who gets out on parole just amplifies the problems in our society. But at the same time, AI is currently searching for cures for COVID. The mathematical and computational abilities of AI compared to the human brain are staggering. Dr. Schneider is a professor of philosophy whose work centers around consciousness and artificial intelligence. Prior to joining FAU, Dr. Schneider served as the NASA Baruch Bloomberg Chair at the Library of Congress and NASA, and her work has been cited by the New York Times, Wired, and National Geographic. And Dr. Schneider is our guest for this edition of In Conversation. She sat down with Dean Horswell over a video call in August of 2020. Welcome, Dr. Susan Schneider, to In Conversation in the Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters. I've really been looking forward to this conversation today. Thanks for having me. And of course, I also am excited to welcome you to Florida Atlantic University. So you've just joined us here in August in the middle of the pandemic, and we are thrilled to have you on our faculty. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be joining the faculty. It just seems like such a wonderful group of people, and um, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, we, we are looking forward to collaborating with you. I thought I'd start out by asking you something I ask all our faculty in conversation, and, and that is... How did you get into your academic discipline? What inspired you to become a philosopher? Well, I did something rather crazy um, at the time. I, when I was an undergraduate, I moved to Eastern Europe and I lived in a communist country. It was the first time they ever allowed American students there as exchange students. So when I was there, I met a lot of philosophers who were not allowed to actually work with Hungarian students. It was in Hungary because of their philosophical views, because at the time, the only philosophy that was allowed by the state was that endorsed by Marx and Engels. So I studied all sorts of intriguing philosophers and sociologists like Michel Foucault, Irving Goffman, a lot of social theory. And the interesting thing about that was the things that I studied with the Hungarians actually mirrored situations going on in the country at the time because it was an authoritarian dictatorship. And so that just pulled me right in. And then when I went back to UC Berkeley, it turned out they had 
one of the top philosophy programs in the world. And so even though I was an economics undergraduate, I just jumped into graduate courses in philosophy. Oh, wow. Must have been an incredible time to be over in Hungary. I tell you, I firmly believe the transformative quality of study abroad and you know, getting yourself out of your comfort zone and into a new, you know, a new context for really that kind of intellectual growth, kind of on steroids, right? When you when you have those kind of experiences. So Yeah, I feel very strongly about study abroad. I tell you, it's like living a chapter of your life that is totally different than any other chapter. And so in a way, it sort of gives you a sense that you've lived life to its fullest. So then once you knew you wanted to be a philosopher, what drew you to the specific subfield of philosophy of mind and, and consciousness? It, it was hard to resist because at UC Berkeley, I was able to take graduate courses with some of the best philosophers of mind in the world, like Donald Davidson and John Searle. And then in cognitive science, there was all this groundbreaking work on concepts going on with um, people like Eleanor Roche. And in linguistics, George Lakoff and others were there. So the, it was a kind of being in the right place at the right time where real cutting edge work was going on in cognitive science and philosophy of mind in particular, but in all sorts of related fields. Susan, you have become a very well-known philosopher in the world for research and writing on the topic of artificial intelligence and consciousness. Um, as mentioned in your introduction, you hold very important positions such as the Baruch Bloomberg, NASA, and Library of Congress Chair in Astrobiology. And here at FAU, you will hold the William F. Dietrich Distinguished Professor of Philosophy of Mind and a joint appointment with FAU's Brain Institute, led by Dr. Randy Blakely. Um, your most recent book has caused quite a sensation. Uh, it is called Artificial You, AI and the Future of the Mind. And it boldly explores what is in store for us, for humanity, as machine learning leaps ahead at light speed. And so there's so much we could discuss. But first, I thought maybe it'd be good for our audience to hear how you define artificial intelligence. What is AI? Good question. So it's all around us in a broad sense. I mean, it's there when you're doing a Google search, it's there beating the world chess champions and it's getting better by the minute. So I don't use AI in a really restricted sense to mean, you know, the kind of creatures you'd see in Black Mirror or Blade Runner, like androids, <laughs> intelligent, like humans, um, as fun as that is to talk about. I think of AI as intelligent algorithms. And so how does that look in our everyday life, intelligent algorithms? It's been transformative. I mean, it transformed the shape of public discourse during the elections. Look at the algorithms on Facebook that created sort of bubbles that amplified one's own views and amplified discontent. I think we're gonna see a lot of unemployment because of developments in AI that are moving very, very quickly. So, you know, one of the things I do is I work with Congress on all these issues involving the threats as well as the promises of artificial intelligence. 
you know, AI threatens to create biased algorithms. So right now we're seeing biased decision procedures when it comes to selecting who gets mortgages, who gets out on parole, right? Just amplifies the problems in our society. But at the same time, AI is currently searching for cures for COVID. So, you know, the mathematical and computational abilities of AI compared to the human brain are staggering. Mm. And so in the book, Artificial You, you argue that AI may outpace, outpace human intelligence as it continues to develop. So as a philosopher, for you, what are the implications of that for us mere mortals? Well, <laughs> there are a lot of implications. I mean, one is we really need to plan legislative guardrails to protect humans. <laughs> we need to plan for widespread technologically based unemployment. So we need to talk about the social issues. We also need to talk about what we want for the future of the human mind. So a lot of what my book Artificial You does is discuss what I think are unnoticed philosophical issues involving AI and the brain. So one thing, for example, that I'm very concerned about is where I see a lot of future AI research headed. So right now, companies like Google and Facebook are developing technologies to put AI inside the head to track our very thoughts. So for those people who are worried about data privacy, and you should be really worried about data privacy right now, <laughs> the issues compound in 10 to 20 years because now there will be potentially children or even adults like us walking around with brain chips or other things like wearables. So wearable technology that tracks our thoughts is around the corner. There's a wristband that Facebook has, and it's going to be beta tested in six months. And it tracks our motion initiation thoughts through our nervous system. You should be really worried about that. Wow. Yeah, you don't want Facebook knowing what you're thinking. They didn't do a very good job with the data about us that they had. They have a bad track record. And so how receptive is Congress to the arguments that you're making as a philosopher and an ethicist around these issues for our future? I think they were pretty receptive. So there was a day I went in to present my book to Congress. It was the day they had one of the real star witnesses for the impeachment hearings and there were police everywhere. So I go in and I'm thinking no one is going to be at my talk. <laughs> and there were lots of people there and the members Got it. I mean, they were really interested. And I've been contacted by many people, many members to advise staffers. And, you know, there's some people in Congress that I'm on the phone with regularly about issues. And there have been concrete changes based on my, my suggestions, which is one of the things that's exciting to see is a little bit of pressure being put at the very high levels of Facebook about their use of the technology. Well, and that's what really is exciting about the, your work for us here at FAU. As you know, FAU has been named a university of distinction in the area of AI and data science. And so having you here leading these conversations on 
the ethics and the moral implications of the technology seems extremely important for our university and for our whole state and, and really the nation itself. And so uh, that, that is exciting. So one of the things you focus on in some of your articles and interviews is the question about whether what we call robots, will they have a consciousness as they develop? And I was wondering, could you walk us through a scenario or two to help us understand what is at stake in such a question? Why would we care? Couldn't we just switch them off? Okay, so first off, it's really neat for people to think about consciousness. So let me tell people about consciousness because I think it's the most central aspect of one's mental life, okay? So when we're talking about consciousness, we're talking about the felt quality of experience, what it feels like from the inside to be you, okay? So when you smell the aroma of your morning espresso shot or you see the hues of a sunset on the beach, it feels like something to be you, right? Consciousness is what makes life so exciting. It makes it very painful at times too, right? But it's why we live. You know, everything that we ever learn, everything we ever think is through the lens of conscious experience, okay? So consciousness, by the way, is different than having a conscience. I just want to mention the words are connected, but they're they're different. Okay, so like my example that I, I like is Jeffrey Dahmer was conscious, but he didn't have a conscience. Okay, very conscious when he was dismembering people. <laughs> okay, so now why does that matter when it comes to machines? Well, okay, the reason that we accord rights or legal protections to individuals is that they're conscious. They can feel pain. They can suffer. Similarly, with non-human animals, the reason that people who do care about animal suffering care is that they believe non-human animals are conscious. If machines are conscious, it's a game changer. It may be that it's not just robots that are conscious. It could be some server farm that doesn't look human at all, right? I mean, some androids look incredibly human. But if machines are conscious, then sending them to fight our wars or clean up our houses, dismantle nuclear reactors without thinking about it ethically is wrong. In fact, it's arguably it's a form of slavery. So we need to figure out whether machines are conscious, but the bad news is that we don't really know why humans are conscious. <laughs> We're still working on that one, huh? Yeah, there's a big scientific debate in neuroscience, actually, about what the neural basis of consciousness is. And I read from your reading your work, it seems that you have proposed some philosophical tests to answer that question. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. So I'm hoping that the neuroscientists answer it in the case of humans at some point. There is promising work, but I can make suggestions about how we can go about telling if machines are conscious, at least in certain cases. So I have two tests. One of them is actually being patented by Princeton University together with myself that I worked on with a professor of astrophysics at Princeton, Edwin Turner, a frequent collaborator. And that test basically is a verbal question and answer test that you do at the R&D stage. So you can't feed in answers. 
So you have to be very careful what kind of systems you run the test on. But basically, you probe for the felt quality of experience. So you try to see if it feels like anything from the inside to be the machine. And there are different ways you can do that. The test questions are published in my latest book. It's, it's very philosophical. I mean, I use philosophical thought experiments to determine if the machine is conscious. Now, that test doesn't work for a lot of machines, though. I mean, it's really good for verbal machines that have human level IQ and a sense of self. But lots of conscious beings don't have that on the planet. So I have another test, which I call the chip test, which I talk about in the book and which I talked about in a TED talk and other places. And that test actually, I think it will be done. In fact, there's ongoing work on it right now. So the idea is simple. Here's my proposal. As we start to put chips in the head, that is microchips to replace parts of the brain that are broken in certain patients. If we see deficits of consciousness and we can't fix it with chips, over the years, it could be decades of research, we have, I think, good reason to infer that that kind of chip is not a suitable neural basis for conscious experience. And so that would give us some skepticism about the possibility that anything built of those chips, i.e. robots, could be conscious. So have you said the experiment is being carried out or will be carried out soon on humans that have had the enhancements to their bodies? It's for humans who are having therapies. So, you know, enhancements for you involving brain chips, you can't justify that ethically right now. You know what I mean? Because why interfere with a well-working brain, right? But if you have a medical case, then you can justify a therapeutic use of a brain chip. And for decades now, there have been projects like that under development. So I'll tell you about one that's currently in phase two clinical trials in humans. It's an artificial hippocampus to help individuals who can't lay down new memories. And it's been working. If listeners want to read about it, they can Google Ted Berger and brain chip. It'll come right, right up. He's over at USC. He works often with the defense department. <laughs> <laughs> they're interested in this, they say, because they want to help individuals who have brain disorders, not super soldiers. That's where I was going with this. You brought up the ethical decision to actually even start using these brain chips in undamaged brains. But I, we've all seen too much science fiction, right, about how societies go there even um, for other reasons, for greed or power hungriness, good old human, you know, motivations. Yeah. So one of the first books I did was called Science Fiction and Philosophy. And so I've seen way too much science fiction. And yes, you know, these cyber dystopias, I mean, in fact, they're becoming real. And science fiction is becoming science fact. And it's precisely due to the imagination of these science fiction writers that we can anticipate things could be headed in this direction. And that's why I think it's so important to set up the proper social guardrails, like within, you know, privacy law, within public awareness of the possibilities. Because if we talk about it now, and, you know, that's why I work with Congress, 
hopefully 20 years from now, when the technology is fully developed and ready to go in the heads of people who don't even have brain disorders, we'll be careful. And by the way, I am excited about the use of this technology, though, to help individuals who do have brain disorders, like locked-in patients and patients who don't have a working hippocampus. Right. Now, that seems like a, a wonderful advancement for those folks. But I guess I do have to admit I am a bit scared of this imminent future that is just around the corner. I feel like we have not mastered being human yet, but we're forging ahead into the transhumanism. And how do you feel about that? Is, is, our, is the human race ready for this? How do we get more ready? Because I guess it is inevitable. Yeah, I like the way you put that. We haven't mastered being human. That's right. And we haven't mastered being humane either. Yeah. And I think it's precisely through understanding our limitations. And in the book, I put forth a sort of platform that I actually call metaphysical humility so that we understand that we don't even know what we don't know when it comes to this. And actually, when I was younger, I was a transhumanist. And in fact, I still am in a broad sense, but I mean, I think that frankly, they've gone off the deep end in thinking that we should upload our consciousness to the cloud, for example, or substitute parts of our brain for chips. I mean, we need to think first and foremost, what is it to even have a mind? And how can humans flourish? Um, it's, it's really important to have these kinds of discussions in a public way too. So, you know, I'm always down on philosophers for being inaccessible. And I think we do harm in this case if we don't express the issues extremely clearly and broadly. No, I, I agree with you. And I think this is the value of the humanities and particularly philosophy to be out in the public sphere like you are leading it, leading these conversations. We really need to be central to every research project, it seems to me, related to these advancements. So that's why I'm so excited that you're coming here to FAU to establish a center that will do some of this thinking and this kind of research. Would you like to preview a little bit today what you might do with the founding of this new center at FAU? Sure. I'm so excited. And I'm I can't believe I have this wonderful opportunity to create a center for these issues because I've wanted to do this for a long time, create a center, actually. And I think FAU is the right place because there's just so much cutting edge work in AI, neuroscience, and philosophy. So, you know, what I would like to do is really get public and academic discussion going surrounding these issues. Because like I've already indicated, we really need to have a public platform for these issues. But also, there needs to be more research. And I think that there's great potential at FAU to have research on these questions. You know, I'm already talking to colleagues about projects. And, you know, the Brain Institute is so excited to be working on the interface between the brain and AI. I'm sure that we will have very soon, a number of really exciting research projects. And I'm also hearing a lot about virtual reality. So 
stay tuned. I, I have a bunch of cool events planned, some with NASA coming up soon. Oh, fantastic. Well, we look forward to it. And of course, the virtual reality world is something that we are exploring very significantly in our School of Communication Multimedia Studies, as well as other parts of our university and College of Engineering, of course, and computer science. So it's exciting to have, again, a philosopher to help bridge some of these different colleges and, and other units that are working on these important advancements. So any last words on this brave new world that's here among us uh, that we're all entering into? Any advice for our students about the future, maybe how to prepare for it as a university student? Yes, actually, I urge everybody to stay on top of projections for jobs, like where the jobs will be, because with AI comes the possibility that some sectors will not have jobs in them. So you have to follow that. And I suggest very strongly to, this is going to sound funny, but specialization is of course important, but in the context of the future, choose a major with critical thinking skills that really gets you as well as specialized, gets you a broad ranging background because you may have three different career paths in your life and having those critical thinking skills is going to be the thing that's extraordinarily important. That is right up the alley of the College of Arts and Letters. And we are so thrilled to have you with us here in the college and also partnering with other units across FAU. So again, welcome to South Florida. And I can't wait to see you in person on campus soon. Thank you so much for having me, Dean Horswell. It was really fun. You've been listening to Professor Susan Schneider and Dean Michael Horswell of FAU's Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters, In Conversation. They were recorded in August of 2020. In Conversation is a production of FAU's School of Communication and Multimedia Studies. I'm Max Maldonado. All of us thank you for listening. We invite you to join us for another edition of In Conversation. You can find In Conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.